Um, it's great to be with you today. Uh, Levi and Amanda, you must be very proud. The debut of your son on the drums there, that was great. No, we really believe that the local church is the context for leadership development. That's our eighth core value. Um, and that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm, up, I'm up here today. Um, part of it's to give Levi a break, and part of it is also to explore some leadership development. Um, we're in part two of um, a two-part series, the ministry that turns a city upside down. So I'd like you to start finding your way to Acts 19. Um, last week, we learned about the kind of ministry that turns a city upside down. And who remembers Levi's four take-home points? There's a test. I'm going to wait here awkwardly till you come up with all of them. No, I'm kidding. Okay, but Levi told us four marks of, uh, four marks of a ministry that turns a city upside down. And today we're going to hear about how carrying out that ministry turns a city ups, more than upside down and, and it starts a riot. But those four points were ministry needs to be animated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? It needs to be filled with God's word. It needs to invoke a fear of the Lord, and ministry that turns a city upside down is marked by repentance. One of the things that Levi said in his message uh, really hit me. He said, we need, when he was talking about ministry that's filled with God's power, he said this, we need to be aiming for the stars. Aim for what we're called to aim for. Aim to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he has taught us and that he's with us till the end of the age. That's our aim. That's our goal. And it sounds deceptively simple. But that's what changes a city. That's what flips, it's on, on, that's what flips a city on its head. And as we see today, that's what's going to cause a riot. Simple Christian living, disciples living out the way, that causes a revolutionary witness. So our approach today to the text is going to be pretty simple. We're going to read it. We're going to find out why the gospel caused a riot in Ephesus, and then we're going to hopefully extract some implications for life today. So with that in mind, we'll read the word of the Lord. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Archaea, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also go see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen, and these he gathered together with workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we get our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger that not only this trade of ours would fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess, Artemis, may be counted as nothing. And she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged 
And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, those are local rulers, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them didn't even know why they were there. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized him as a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing these things cannot be denied. You ought to do nothing rash. For I've, you've brought these men together who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, at the end there, you can tell the town clerk he's sweating. I don't know if you knew that, but if the Ephesians rioted too often, the Romans would come in and just clean house, and they'd lose all their freedoms. So it's kind of, I think he was pretty agitated. We've said this before, the gospel shakes up a culture. And I would argue that it's because it, it shakes the foundations and the fundamental assumptions and the fundamental worldview and worship of the culture that it comes into contact with. And that's the way it happened back in Paul's day, and that's the way it happens, uh, continues to happen today. And it's not always a quiet process. And we see a riot in our text today. So let's ask the question, why did the gospel cause a riot in Ephesus? And I think the first and very obvious answer is that an economy of sin was threatened when the gospel took root. Read with me in uh, verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have got all our wealth. And you see and hear that not only here in Ephesus, but all over Asia, Paul has persuaded many away from... uh, Turned many away from, turned away a great many people, saying that gods are no gods at all, that are made in his hands. You see, the gospel hit this idol industry where it hurts, right in their wallet. You see, Christians spend differently because we love differently. We have a, a different God. How we spend our money is super central to what we love. Listen to what Jesus says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus talks a tremendous amount about money. I don't know if you knew, uh, the, the writer of Acts, Luke, in his gospel, one out of every seven verses about, is about money. Eleven 
of the 39 parables that Jesus talks about are about money or possessions. And some 15% of his teachings that are covered in the Gospels in general are about money and possessions. Why is that? Why does God, why does Jesus care so much about money? Does he need it? No. He cares about our money, not because he needs it, but because it is an arrow that points directly to what we love and directly to what we ultimately worship and desire. Jesus says, he makes it really clear, Luke 13, or 16, he says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you can imagine now, this kind of ethos is starting to permeate Ephesus. And disciples are being added day by day. And what's going to happen to the culture? I mean, more disciples meant more rearrangement of the economy. And the economy of sin and the economy of darkness started to suffer as more and more people came to Christ. We saw a similar principle to this being acted out in Acts 16. I don't know if you remember that, when Paul and Silas are walking through the streets, and there's a woman walking behind them who's prophesying and, true, and, and future-telling, and Paul and Silas exercise this demon, and what was the response? Anger and rioting because... They'd lost their money. Listen to how Matthew Henry comments on, on our passage in Acts today. I, I feel like I should read it in a British accent. Wasn't he old and British? Men are jealous. No, I won't. Men are jealous for that by which they get their wealth. They set themselves against the gospel of Christ because it calls them from all unlawful crafts however much wealth has gotten by them. Last week, we heard of some of those crafts in Ephesus. Uh, this week, we hear a little bit of the idol-making craft. Last week, it was uh, witchcraft and magic and sorcery. But, you know, we have our own unlawful crafts in our culture. Uh, I was kind of horrified to realize that you can, uh, as an investor, specifically invest in industries of darkness and industry of sin. You can actually go online and go to Vanguard or Advice Advisor and buy what's called a Vice EFT, Exchange Traded Fund, or a SIN stock. So it's an investment vehicle that allows you to only pick industries that enslave and addict and harm people. Like, does anyone else think that that's nuts? Right? It's kind of antithetical to us. We're like, what? Why would people do this? That's crazy. Gary, what, what's going on? And I would say simply because it's lucrative. Unlawful crafts. What does Matthew Henry say? They set themselves against the gospel. The world loves its money. And so then it reacts with violence when we start to question the assumptions about where that came from. Kevin DeYoung commenting on this passage says, is your life, and I would add your, the way you spend your money, a threat to sinful practices and those living by them? I mean, that is an excellent question. 
is the way that you spend your money look different enough from your pagan brothers and sisters? That it threatens sinful practices and unethical business. Like, is my credit card statement going to look different than somebody else's? That's, that's the question. And that's not just locally, but abroad. Uh, we're going to encounter an extreme example, but it is the example that comes from the text. You'll see why in a minute. Um, of how the gospel should affect the bottom line of sin industry. Think about porn. 98% of men, 78% of women access this, according to a Canadian study in the last six months. What if we saw a widespread revival? Would that not affect the bottom line of this industry? Right? Some of you may struggle with this, and I need you to listen very carefully. You need to know that every time you access porn, you're pulling out your wallet and you're tithing into the kingdom of darkness. You're making an offering on the altar of lust. You're worshiping a God. It's a $15 billion industry in the States alone. Some estimates say $98 billion a year worldwide. And you donate to that you donate to the church of porn every time you pay for it. And if you're getting it for free, you're supporting it through advertisers. Every one of those actors is somebody's little boy or girl. That should be harrowing. And worse, m much of that industry is actual slavery. And when you access it, you're paying, you're tithing, you're offering to keep them enslaved. So it's not just your personal struggle. It's not. It's not your personal struggle. I say this with love, okay? I want you to hear this. This is truth and love. How dare we pay into that? Authentic Christian living has to affect that industry's bottom line. And we see this was exactly what was happening in Ephesus. This isn't a hobby horse. The market for silver idols was not the only thing dropping in, in decline in Ephesus when Christians started to grow in numbers and change the way they spent money. But the, the cult sex practices and the cult sex trade was also in decline. You have to know that Artemis is a fertility god. Listen to what I. Howard Marshall says. He says, she was represented as a female figure with many breasts, according to the usual imagery. And an image of her was placed in the great temple in Ephesus, which ranked as one of the seven wonders of the world. The festival of Artemis was celebrated with wild orgies and carousing. Carousing is a polite word for... Oh, I just want you to... No, it's sexual licentiousness, like absolute sexual freedom. There were crazy things happening in Ephesus, and it's no different today. It's no different today. Ephesus was a culture steeped in sexual liberties, just like ours. And as more and more people came under the lordship of Christ, that economy that was associated with the worship of this goddess was weakened. 
Imagine if that happened locally here. If pimps moved out of town and our local women were freed from slavery because the sex trade was no longer profitable. Hmm? Would that not change the landscape of our city? Or imagine if other vice industries or sin industries took deep financial hits because the gospel was spreading throughout the culture. We would no longer have a marijuana shop on every single corner of our town. Is anyone else irritated by that? I think we'd see the, the gambling portfolio across the lake start to fall. Wouldn't that be great? And people set free. And you can imagine when industries face a financial bottom line threat like that, they get angry and there's a riot. And that's why we saw it. The second reason why we see a riot in Ephesus is that false gods are exposed. I want you to look with me to verse 28, or 27. And there's a danger that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. So there's Demetrius talking about his money, talking about what we just covered. But also that the temple of the great uh, goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, Demetrius was not uh, engaging in rhetorical hyperbole here. All Asia worshipped Artemis. In fact, all of the Roman Empire worshipped Artemis. We, we do not have a modern-day analogy to compare this to. But there's no modern-day equivalent. Listen to what one scholar reminds us about uh, the temple. The temple of Artemis, about one and a half miles east of the city center, was four times larger than the Parthenon. Uh, And this giant marble temple belonged to one of the seven wonders of the world. So this is worship on a scale that we can't conceive of. Like, this is way beyond megachurch, right? Move over, Rick Morin. Like, way beyond Crystal Cathedral. This is seven wonders of the world-level worship. And people came from all over Asia to participate in this cult. And you can imagine the city, Ephesus, they, they loved the temple. They loved the sexual liberty that it brought. They, they, they loved the status that the temple of Artemis brought. And they sure loved the income. Fundamentally, the city also loved their goddess. And you can imagine when Jesus came to town to dethrone her, that's a big shakeup. Culture's fundamental loves and values and worship was threatened. And people got angry. And it's no different today. This is some of the implications for today. We have idols in our country that are labeled do not touch or we're going to riot. Anybody know one? Just yell it out. Yell it out. What do we worship in Canada? What does our culture love? Abortion. What's the God behind that? Well, the God is autonomy. And he is a powerful principality. I use that word very specifically. He is a principality that rules over us. 
And when his worship is threatened, people get angry. Euthanasia, abortion, the value at the center of, of those debates is autonomy. Me, my rights over the rights of another human being. I'm not saying that it's not a dilemma. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible dilemma. But our worldview just says, no, like, other people have rights too. It's not a, just about you. And, and with euthanasia, what gives you the right to take your life whenever you want, regardless of the fallout that is left when, when you pull the trigger? The God at the center there is me and my rights. And when we push back on that, doesn't the culture get angry with us? My right to make my own identity. And here's the root. The gospel uncovers the fruitlessness and futility of worshiping that God. And just shows us how selfish that actually is. But we got other idols. What about the two daughters of mammon, consumerism and materialism? Don't they hold great sway in our culture? And we willingly pay our tithes and make our offerings to these gods based on the promise that they'll fill the void that's in our heart and soothe our anxieties, treat our depression. I've seen a shirt that says, um, shopping is my therapy. Who's seen that, right? No, shopping is your God. I know it sounds weird to give materialism or autonomy or shopping a personal pronoun like he or she, or to refer to them as little gods, but I personify them on purpose because the Greeks did exactly this. And that's the culture that Paul's working in. And if you want to read more about that, I'd suggest you go to 1 Corinthians 8 through to 10. But these things really do become gods when they're ultimate and when we look to them for ultimate fulfillment and purpose. Listen to what Martin Luther says about his definition of a god. He says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, or that word confides means trusts in, whatever you trust in, that's really your god. And Canadian culture really does trust and hope in its wealth for its security, doesn't it? To which our God just says, you're crazy. He actually says, you fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, your income, your money, your assets, your estate, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I mean, older saints, you may, you, you have, you may have friends that have bought into this and you see the, the sadness in their eyes when they, they realize the futility of living their life for material things, right? It's a sad thing to toil and labor all the days under the sun and realize it is nothing but vapor, vanity. And Canadians, we really do worship the self. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy, who's stationed in Ephesus when he writes 2 Timothy. He says this, but understand this, little Timmy. In those last days, there'll come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, we just talked about. Proud and arrogant. 
but they won't get very far. And the folly, their folly will be plain to all. Part of Christian discipleship is warning people about the futility of these gods, isn't it? And when we do that, when we expose these false gods for the frauds that they are, it destabilizes people. It calls into question what they lived their whole life for. And we can see that it causes a riot. We saw the reasons for the riot, economic, but also worldview worship foundational. And the gospel seems to cause this riot. But when we say that the gospel caused the riot, is that what, is that what we're really saying? We're going to make a little side journey here. Are we saying that the Christians, they, they ran to the streets in protest and they held up their signs and they yelled for their rights? Is that the example we find in our text? So, do we have an excursus? There we go, excursus. I love that word. Um, I'm going to steal a little crack from Levi. Uh, we'll jump to the answer of who started the riot anyway. We didn't start the riot. It was always, uh, sorry, it's the, <laughs> let me try that again. We didn't start the riot. It's the culture's raging because the worship's fading. We didn't start the riot. You'll never forget that now. You'll be like, wow, Gary, that uh, took a lot of courage. Yeah, you see why I'm sweating now. Right? Christians, we, we didn't start the riot. The riot is a response to authentic Christian living, to discipleship, right? The riot starts because the church is changing culture from the inside out. Like yeast in bread. What does Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is like a baker who smashes the dough from the outside and shapes it and conforms it to his will. Is that what it says? No. He told them another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, like yeast that a woman hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom starts small. It works its way through the whole loaf from the inside out. It's like yeast. It's subversive. It changes the culture from the inside out. Paul Carter, uh, in his Into the Word commentary on this verse, says, Our call is to build and maintain a community of contrast. That's disciple-making. That's marked by the ministry that Levi was talking about. Ministry filled with the power of God, marked by the word of God, marked by a fear of God, marked by true repentance, right? That's, that's what this is, to build and maintain a community of contrast. We're to stand tall, to hold our ground, build communities. We're holding our ground. We're not fearful. We're not retreating, yet we're not aggressive, to raise our families, to cherish our beliefs and values, and to shine as light in a dark and dying world. That's the Christian way. In a conversation he and I had, he said, Christianity is subversive as opposed to seditious. We spread like yeast and destabilize a culture. We don't start riots and burn the house down. That would be a good thing for us to remember. 
The riot's not about Christians rallying for their rights or trying to wield the power of government. There's a couple of governments in the world that would do well to know this. The Christian way, the discipleship way, is to work like yeast. I mean, normally this is a really small part in the text, but I think because of the pandemic and what it did to Christian culture, especially in the States and in Canada, I think we just need to be real clear on this. Who quelled the riot? That was the government, right? They're the one that came to the rescue and diffused things in, in this narrative. I think Luke wants us to see that. It's the same thing that happened, and in case you think it's a one-off, it's the same thing that happened in chapter 18 with Proconsul Gallio offering protection. Right? It's the same thing that happened uh, in Philippi when, after Paul was beaten, right? The government provided some protection for the, the church. We as Christians, we just need to be real careful about dismantling institutions when we're critiquing them. Often those institutions are the tool wielded by God to protect his people, right? We see that over and over in the text. And uh, we're quickly becoming the minority, and we, we ought to be careful um, in what we're wishing for. So that said, if we do find ourselves in a riot, how are we going to respond? How do we respond in seasons of upheaval or when we're under the microscope of public scrutiny? public opposition. Well, I think there's four simple things we got to do. We got to listen. We need to pray. We need to wait. And we need to trust. So let's break those four down. Notice that Paul listens. Verse 30. But when Paul wished to go into among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs said, Paul, don't go. And he, and he stopped. You know, like when we're threatened, I don't know about you, but when I'm threatened, my back gets up, I say stupid stuff, my stupid filter all of a sudden gets more holes in it. And I can say things clumsily or hurtfully, right? Because I'm on defense mode. So wouldn't it be a good idea to seek counsel? Right? I mean, just put my cards on the table. Like, during the pandemic, as a doctor, you've got a very clear view of what needs to be done and all this stuff. And I needed to be restrained by my brothers and sisters at the elder table. And, guys, I really appreciated that. It kept me from rupturing important relationships in this church and with others in the community because you were able to speak to my heart and keep me from saying stupid and keep me from saying hurtful. Paul accepts influence. So the principle here is really clear. Listen to brothers and sisters in Christ when you're facing public opposition. Guys, you've got to remember, it's not just you when you're out there in the sphere of public discourse, whether it's on Facebook or in the, the public square downtown. You're representing us, Redeemer City. You're representing Jesus. You're representing the capital C church. And do you really want to go in there naked with just your own temper? Listen to what King Solomon says. Without counsel, plans fail. But with advisors, many advisors, they succeed. That's, that's good advice. 
Secondly, in the right, we need to, we need to pray. We need to seek the Holy Spirit. You know, in our narrative today, Paul listens, and he steps back. In a couple weeks, Levi's going to take us through Acts 21, where Agabus says, you know, acts out this prophetic uh, play where he's, he ties his belt around him to symbolize that Paul's going to be captured and beaten and tortured in Jerusalem. And Agabus says, don't go. And Paul says, I don't care. I'm going. Right? So why, he listens here in Acts 19. He doesn't listen in Acts 21. What's the difference? And the principle we extract that, that tells us what the difference is is found actually in the opening verse of our text. Verse 21. Now after these events, Paul had resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Archaea and go to Jerusalem. You see, Paul was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, despite Agabus' warnings to the contrary, that he had to go. He, he was, that he, the Holy Spirit was con, constraining him to go. And the advice of a trusted brother and sister or sister or prophet was not enough to shake him off that. Listen to what Luke says about Paul's motivations. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem because I am constrained by the Spirit. So putting it all together, when we're in the riot, when we're under the public microscope, when we're under public opposition, we need to accept the influence of others. We need to stop and listen. But equally, we need to seek and pray the Holy Spirit, pray for the Holy Spirit, seek him, and then only then act. And in the case of the riot exercising the option of non-engagement in our narrative was the right way to go. And I think what was really going on here behind the scenes was Satan was trying to bait Paul into a useless, what the gamers call a side quest. Right? I'm going to go over here. But, but where's the end game? Over there. What am I doing over here? Right? Satan often tries to distract us from the real battle to distract us from our true mission to make disciples. Sometimes, and often he uses things like entertainment, and often he uses things like these side battles. Let's not, let's not fall for the bait, which brings us to our third point. We need to wait. Uh, I'm always grateful for the preaching workshop. Uh, I'd say, I don't know, maybe 50% of what you're hearing today is not my ideas, but they're the Lord's ideas. They come from his book, and they're filtered through a group of men, and I'm really grateful for that. In, in the preaching workshop, it was talked about how in a riot, when we're under threat, when we're under scrutiny, it's easy for us to only see that, only see the riot, only see the scrutiny, only see the threat. And yet with all of the fuss and uproar in our text, the, the thing fizzled out very quickly. Only two hours of shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? And then the town clerk says, settled it. We need to realize that we don't need to jump into every conflict every way, every, every, uh, right away. Levi uh, mentioned something uh, that happened here in our city a couple years ago. He said, remember a few years ago when the local church was being picketed every Sunday for their views on sexuality? Anybody remember that? I bet many of you don't even remember it, or if, if you do remember it, it's only when I, when I say it that you remember it. And that's the point. In the riot, it feels like it's everything. 
and it feels like we got to do something right now. But we don't. What we got to do right now is listen and pray and wait. Paul might have been tempted to jump in, but instead he wisely listened to the counsels of many. And uh, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia and stayed on mission. That's an important lesson. And I mean, I, I think it leads to our last point, which is we need to trust. And I suspect we'd be better at waiting if we were better at trusting we need to remember that God has got this, that he's sovereign. And maybe not comp- pulled out of our text explicitly, it is all over Acts how God has got a plan. It's a predestined plan, and it's working itself out step by step. Do you guys remember our table of contents verse to Acts in, in chapter 1, verse 8? It says... Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen throughout the whole book of Acts. He says, first, you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit when it comes upon you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Check. That's already happened at this stage in the narrative. In all Judea, check. In Sumeria, check. And to the ends of the earth. And that's where we find ourselves in this narrative. We're at the end of the earth stage of Jesus' plan, and everything is going tickety-boo. He hasn't dropped anything. Yes, he did just say tickety-boo. We need to trust the process. God's kingdom is coming, and he'll, he'll bring it. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed. Farmer puts it in the ground, he waters it, goes to bed, wakes up. He doesn't know why it grows. And yet, poof, there it is. That's God's job. Our job is to is be disciples, to plant. But God brings the kingdom, and he's going to do it. We need to trust the process. And a riot or violence is not proof that God has lost control. Let's wind the clock back all the way to Jerusalem, where, where Peter was before the Sanhedrin and all the Jewish leaders right after the death of Christ. And uh, the disciples say this. They, they quote one of the Psalms and they say, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together. We're going to find out who those rulers and kings were in just a second. Against the Lord, against his anointed, against Jesus. And if there's any confusion about that passage, the disciples give us a, a beautiful exegesis. They say, for truly in this city, in Jerusalem, we're gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. God brought those people together to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now look. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through your name, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The riot doesn't mean that the plan is off the rails. 
He has a predestined plan. And the giant meta-narrative arc of Acts is to say, God has got this. He has a plan. It will come to its fruit. So we need to trust. We need to trust. So we need to listen in the riot. We need to pray in the riot. We need to wait in the riot. We need to trust. And as we close, I just want to make one more comment. Sometimes it's, um, we have a tendency to zoom in on a, on a text and walk away and, and, and just think this is, the, this is the only way things can go. Right? We see an uproar, we see violence, we see opposition, and we see God letting Paul off the hook, so to speak. And it's tempting to walk away from this and say that God's going to do that for us every time. I mean, I would, I'd, I'd like that answer. I love that. You know, I don't need to face threat. I don't need to face persecution. God will always get me out of it. That's, that sounds like a, a good pass. I'll take that. And that's why we've got to never form a theology or a doctrine on one verse. We have to read our whole, whole Bibles. Right? God's plan is not to let us off the hook in every riot. In some riots, yes, but not in every riot. I mean, we have to remember, God's sovereign plan for Stephen was to have him martyred. And God's sovereign plan for Paul later on in Acts 21 is to have him imprisoned. And the truth is we don't always get the outcome that we want. Even Jesus said that in the garden. He said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me but not my will, but thy will be done. Even Jesus wanted an outcome that was different than the Father's. And yet he said, not my will, but thine. And and we have to have that same attitude. We've got to trust. We won't get the outcome that we want, but we'll get the outcome that God wants. And that needs to be a comfort to us. We have to trust. His plan is advancing, and he's planted his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that needs to be a comfort to us in the riot. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it rebukes and encourages, and how it cuts us and it heals us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And some of us need today, today need to respond to your word by realigning our spending. Uh, we feel you telling us our spending habits or our pursuit of money and materialism look more like our pagan neighbors and that we still have altars to false gods in our homes. Lord, forgive us and show us the path to lasting change. Some of us today need to hear that we don't need to run into every battle. And some of us need the courage to enter the fray as we're cowards. Uh, Lord, just with your Holy Spirit, enlighten us. All of us need to hear that you are over it all. All of us need to hear that nothing escapes your sight. You are in control. Help us to rest in that knowledge when you quell the riot. Help us to rest in that knowledge when you don't and when you send us to prison or worse. Lord, commit us 
to your hand and your plan and to whatever you have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon the threats of our culture and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Amen. Worship team.